This message by Mike Frisby was recorded at the Relational Mission Church Planting Conference 2015 in Berkel, the Netherlands. Okay, so just, just check in. You're all here for the call-in, the cookie jar, and the contextualization. Sometimes I know when you're taking seminars, you suddenly find somebody from another seminar is sitting in front of you. So that's, that's great. So I hope you've got notes there. Um, so I said uh, yesterday that the notes are there to give you some heading. So it's not everything I'm going to say in there. So it gives you some space to fill in if you want to uh, write in uh, yourselves. I want to start uh, this afternoon... Um, Firstly, by reading some words of a song, which uh, are actually up in my my office uh, back in Cambridge. It's a song by an American uh, singer called Honey Tree. And uh, I found this song many, many years ago. And uh, the words of it so struck me that uh, I copied it all out and have it uh, printed twice on different uh, at different places within my, my office. Just read the words to you. Uh, pioneer, pioneer. Keep pressing onward beyond your fear. Only the Father goes before you. To your own frontier, you're a pioneer. Uncharted wilderness stretches before you, and you thrive on going where no one has gone. Still it gets lonely when darkness deepens, so sing by the fire until the dawn. You travel on, you travel alone, and when you arrive, nobody knows. But the Father in heaven, he is glad you can go. For those who come after you will need the road. And what you have done, others will do. Bigger and better and faster than you. But you can't look back. No, you've got to keep pressing through. There's a wilderness pathway and it's calling you. Calling you, calling you clear. Keep pressing onward. You can't stay here. Only the Father goes before you to your own frontier you're a pioneer. I find those words both uh, challenging and also very uh, encouraging. And I guess it raises for all of us the question of if we are in pioneer church planting, if God has called us to pioneer in any sort of field uh, in terms of his kingdom, uh, then how do we keep going through the difficult times, through the loneliness, through the fear? Uh, how do we keep going so that we don't look back, but we keep pressing onward uh, to what God has called us to? And that's, uh, I want to pull out uh, this afternoon just three kind of areas to look at, which I think uh, certainly my experience and working with people pioneering around the world, uh, they've found uh, really helpful. And in fact, uh, uh, some of these things, uh, I was recently reading a book uh, called Working uh, in the Islamic World, A Wind in the House of Islam. I don't know how many of you have read that book. Uh, it's a really great book. But if you look through that, uh, you'll uh, find actually some of the things I'm talking about this afternoon actually come up in that uh, from seasoned church planters working in the Islamic world that kind of fall in with the same kind of things I'm talking about. So one of the first things I think that can really help you when you're pioneering, particularly during the difficult times, uh, is being certain of the fact that God has called you to pioneer. So important that we all know very clearly uh, that God has called us to this. It's not something where we take up uh, just because everybody else is talking about church planting. Well, let's give it a go. There's got to be that sense of certainty uh, that God has called you to that. And I guess uh, when I talk to people, um, you know, certainly when I'm trying to help people, 
follow through on what they feel God is saying to them about pioneering, uh, I usually find that people would usually like an unmistakable call from God that's uh, attended by supernatural signs. So often in the early days when I'm talking, they're they're looking for a kind of Moses experience, you know, or suddenly they're going to come across that bush that is burning and uh, God speaks to them out of it. Or maybe a Gideon experience, you know, when he's hiding away trying to thresh the corn because, uh, you know, the enemy is coming and suddenly God, the angel, appears to him and uh, says, Gideon, you mighty man. And then he gets that calling uh, to go and fight the Midianites. Or perhaps even that nice time when David came to Jesse and had all the sons pass before him and they were all rejected and he says you know have you got any others <laughs> and they say oh yeah there's only a shepherd boy out on the hill there's only david and then david's brought in and samuel anoints him that's a great way to know that you know he's going to be the next king and so forth that's that's really certain even maybe a call like isaiah I mean, that was a great call, wasn't it, when he's in the temple and he gets that vision of God and his throne filling the temple and uh, he feels so undone and then the angel comes and touches his lips and his guilt is taken away and then he hears the voice, who will go? And Isaiah responds, here am I, uh, you know, send me. And then if we whip to the New Testament, you know, perhaps we'd like it to be a bit like Paul. Not that we, you know, want to be on a horse and get knocked off by a blinding light and hearing this voice saying, you know, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But, uh, of course that was quite dramatic and then, uh, God sends to him Ananias and Ananias was particularly sent to Paul, uh, to show him actually the pathway, uh, that God had mapped out for him, which of course for Paul included suffering. So I think, you know, deep down, if we're all honest, we'd really love, if only I had a call like that, I'd really be sure and certain so that whatever happened to me, uh, I'd know I was really anchored uh, in that. I want to say, first of all, um, before I I really want to kind of lay emphasis on something else, that actually a call can still come in that way. God is still God. And uh, I know of people who have very dramatic um, calls from God to pioneer in different situations. And uh, if Rob and Liz were here uh, from China, obviously doing a seminar somewhere else, uh, if you talk to them, uh, you'll find that their call to China was very, very dramatic in terms of how God spoke to them and the way that things came together in order to enable them to be in China and to have the great influence that they, they have there today. Um, I don't know how many of you know of the uh, Christian satellite TV station called Sat7, which uh, broadcasts into the Middle East and North Africa, uh, now works 24-7, uh, broadcasting Christian programs into that. And one of the most popular programs on that channel uh, is the Children's Channel. And the, uh, uh, the young lady that uh, heads that up was actually born in Lebanon, and uh, she grew up particularly in the times of the civil war and the troubles and uh, she came to know the Lord and part of her growing up was that God gave her a tremendous love uh, for the children of Lebanon uh, so many of them that have been damaged through the civil war and sort of things we see on our televisions now uh, where children are witnessing atrocities day after day and so she committed herself actually to working with the children in Lebanon and then uh, some fake, uh, friend of mine, he's the CEO of uh, Sat7, and uh, Terry heard of her and uh, just as, uh, you know, her abilities. And so he asked her whether she would actually come over to Sat7 uh, and would head up the children's program. 
and uh, she refused him first off and said well it's a lovely offer and uh, but actually I, I just feel such a heart uh, for God's uh, uh, for the people here the children in Lebanon and so Terry very wisely said well because he was quite convinced she should be the one <laughs> but he said to her well you know go back and pray about it and, and ask the Lord so she began to pray about it and she was just uh, she was just praying one day in a bedroom just knelt down by the side of the bed and was just praying and really asking the Lord Lord do you really want me to go I really don't want to go because I love the children here and then as she was praying she looked up and literally across her bedroom wall walked children from all the different nations of the Middle East. And she could tell where they came from by their dress and, uh, and how they appeared to her. And as she watched these children go across her wall, uh, she began to cry and she began to realize that God was saying, these are the children that uh, need you and need the skills and abilities that I've, I've given. And to uh, cut a long story short, <laughs> she then responded and uh, she felt the call of God. And uh, now over 10 million children uh, link into her broadcast every week. Uh, it's quite something, isn't it, to be broadcasting to 10 million children week after week after week and sharing the good news. So what I'm just trying to say is that although, uh, you know, for most of us, which is what I'm going to say now, most of us, our call is a process. I don't want to shut that out because <laughs> God has ways of calling us and taking hold of us. And so I want us to be open to that. And uh uh, and it's important to allow the Holy Spirit to do what he wants to do. But I do think for the majority of us, uh, our call is probably an ongoing process over a period of time that builds to what I might call an utter certainty of the will of God for our lives. And there are really two parts that combine in that call. There's what I would call firstly the subjective, and by that I mean that inner conviction or witness of the Holy Spirit in our heart uh, Sometimes you say, you know, not the head, but the heart. But actually, I think it's down here in the gut <laughs> that you often get that inner witness from God that he's stirring you uh, about something. And then there is the objective, um, the outward confirmation that God brings into your life through people and circumstances that seem to confirm uh, what God is saying to you uh, in your innermost being. And I found through the years a number of different elements that um, when I've talked to people uh, that were part of their process of uh, sensing God's call and particularly that specific call to uh, a people or a nation or a particular church plan. First is the advice of trusted friends and church leaders. I usually say to folk, if you're feeling a stirring, go and talk to people that know you well and uh, talk with them and just share what you feel God's putting on your heart and see what the reaction is. Now, I need to just give a caveat on that because sometimes I know in some churches, if you start sharing that you feel God is, is you know, calling you to another nation or another place, sometimes people can be very negative. Oh, you don't want to go there. We don't want to lose you. And sometimes it even comes from church leaders. If they've been discipling you and training you up and you've just got to that point where you're really being fruitful, they can be a bit hesitant of you going off. But when you've got good leaders and you've got trusted friends, uh, they're able to speak quite real realistically into your life and they can tell you well that sounds as though it's you know really off the wall <laughs> well they say no I, I think that's really great I can see God shaped you in this way and uh, you're being fruitful in this area because sometimes you know if you're going to go and share the gospel with people one of the questions I often ask of folk is are you sharing the gospel now at home 
Because, uh, you know, if you're not doing it at home, uh, don't think because you're just going to another nation or to another part of your country that that's going to work for you. There's got to be things in you. So sometimes that can be a real help for coming alongside you and giving you that encouragement and kind of confirmation. Sometimes God speaks to us uh, through Scripture. Uh, I remember one of the girls who went to church plant in Cyprus, and uh, she was just going through her daily readings and came to Acts 11:20, which you needn't look up, but it, it just says, you know, and uh, and God sent them to the Greek speakers. And as she just read that in her daily reading, it's just like the verse popped out, you know, popped off the page to her. And she really felt God stir her, that the Holy Spirit came upon her as she just read that phrase. And uh, from that, she began to investigate whether it was possible for her um, to go out and to work amongst Greek-speaking people. And I'll talk about her again in a minute. Um, but she took then steps to just probe that and see whether that was right. If this is God is speaking, um, how will it work, work out uh, for me? And in fact, one of the things that uh, happened shortly after God spoke to her was that her pastor, actually got invited to go to Cyprus and uh, and to speak at a, a church out there. And when she knew that he was going, she said, you know, could I come with you? And uh, so she traveled out with him. And uh, while she was there, she she got to know some of the Greek speakers and that there. And God began a process of confirming to her that that was the right place for her to be. So sometimes God can speak to you directly through his word. Uh, confirmation through prayer and prophecy. Um, prayer and prophecy often um, confirms what's already building in your heart. And it's important to be aware of that. And uh, that's why if you're feeling any sense of stirring, uh, I'd say to you, take every opportunity you know, to be prayed for or to be prophesied over. Because it's wonderful when God um, speaks to you. I can remember years ago in my own experience that uh, I was feeling very stirred about coming out of pastoral ministry in the sense of leading a church to be more involved in church planting around the world and uh, equipping leaders around the world and I hadn't told anybody about it but I just felt that stirring uh, and then I was asked to go on a ministry trip to our churches in South Africa and uh, while I was there um, I had to speak um, part of the itinerary was actually speaking to another movement of churches uh, in Durban and I spoke that morning with a group of leaders and then just as we were sort of finishing the morning uh, the guy said you know would you like us to pray for you <laughs> I said oh yeah that would be really lovely so they gathered around me they laid hands on me and they began to pray and then one guy began to prophesy and it was like he read my mail you know and uh, as he prophesied there was all the things I've been talking to the Lord about <laughs> and, uh, and it was just wonderful to have that kind of prophetic confirmation of what I felt God had been stirring in my heart and so again our, our call can come because you know as people pray for us as people prophesy over us we start to find God confirming what we feel is is in our heart sometimes uh, supernatural events uh, just like the lady I mentioned in Sat 7 visions dreams those are ways in which God can uh, actually come and speak to you we see in the Bible with Paul being called over to Macedonia is not allowed to go into certain areas and then he has the vision of the man of Macedonia. So visions and dreams are one way. And uh, just want to say that in so many parts of the world now, 
people are having many more visions and dreams of the Lord. Certainly in the Islamic world now, many uh, Muslims that are coming to Christ are coming to Christ because they're seeing visions and dreams uh, of the Lord Jesus. And in many parts of the world, in Africa and so forth, um, that kind of supernatural element, the regularity of dreams and visions is much more than we have here in the West. They're much more geared into that. But it's very biblical. You start to work through Scripture and see how many times God speaks through angels and visions and dreams and then divine appointments sometimes God will bring people across your path in life um, that will actually confirm again where God is is directing you and so it may seem just a a, a chance happening but God sends people into your life um, to talk about uh, uh, those things Uh, I had a great experience um, recently we had um, a guy who came to Cambridge to study and uh, he came from Turkmenistan. Now, I don't know how many of you know the country of Turkmenistan, but it's a dictatorship and Christianity is not allowed in the country and, uh, and there are very, very few Christians. And suddenly he turned up in church and it was just wonderful to meet him. Not only to find he was a believer, but he'd been translating um, the scriptures into his own language. And he had folk that were meeting with him in terms of a small church. And uh, this is just, you know, I've been praying for Turkmenistan and other countries for years. And suddenly there's somebody there who's a believer and he's going to be with us, you know, for a couple of years while he, he does his degree. And I was able to link him up. There was only one other believer uh, that I knew from Turkmenistan, and that was through our, our guys in our churches in Russia. And so I was wonderfully able to put them together. And sometimes those things happen, you know, just out the blue. You find that God puts links in that help you to understand, yeah, this is where God is leading me, because he brings people across your path. There's divine appointments. Sometimes, again, collaboration of circumstances. So when Annette's... Uh, this girl who went to Cyprus, um, she went with her pastor and then she went back a second time and, uh, and she just looked around and, and tried to investigate what it would mean for her to live there. And just as she was coming away, she felt God had really confirmed and said, yeah, this is where I want you to be. And so she said to the Lord, well, Lord, if it is, I'm going to need a job. <laughs> and she was a hairdresser. And, uh, and so she felt the Lord, Lord prompt her to look at the newspaper in a hotel room. And so she picked up the newspaper and she turned to the, to the ads in there and there was, there was an ad there uh, for a hairdresser in a particular um, shop. And so it was two hours to her flight. She managed to phone them. She went for the interview and she got the job before she got on the plane. And uh, so she had to do with the other things like visas and everything when she got home to go back. But sometimes, again, when we start to move out on the things that we feel God is. We take just one step at a time. We find God opens the door and confirms things. Um, again, if we take the Acts 15:28, you remember it talks about when they sent Paul and, uh, and others out, you know, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us uh, is a phrase that's often used in Scripture. And again, the local church actually getting behind you and saying, yeah, we recognize this is what God is doing in your life. This is where God is calling. And I'm sure there are lots of others, but there's some of the more common ones that you find with people when they talk about, when you ask them, well, how did you get certain of, of your call? And uh, some of these elements um, come together. And although they're very common elements, I just want to emphasize again that our call is, is often unique to us. Because although God loves the world and God loves all of us, he treats us as individual children. And uh, therefore, he, he will work in a way that uh, makes it clear to us. 
So I would encourage you, if you're thinking of uh, pioneering in church planting or know others that are, to look for that kind of pattern that's consistent and repeated uh, because that helps you to know your call. And uh, if you remember Mike, when he was talking in the session on, you know, how to weigh the prophetic word, remember one of the things he gave a little illustration of, uh, sometimes you could be on the train platform, but actually you've missed the train. And you remember he said, you know, not to get anxious or worried about that, because if you look up the line, there's another one coming. And, uh, and he used the illustration of Jonah, that Jonah actually refused his call in the first place. But God had a way of dealing with him and getting him back to Nineveh where he wanted him to be. And I just want to say, you know, don't get anxious about this sense. Well, have I got a call? Haven't I got a call? God will make it. If he's calling you to, to work in Pioneer Church planning, particularly in other nations, he'll make that clear to you. And uh, you can, you know, rest in that. Can I just say that if you're a family unit, if a husband and wife are going together uh, into a church planting situation, then they do need to be together. And sometimes I've counseled people where maybe one of the partners is really sure, yeah, this is where we should be, but the other one's not quite so sure, uh, to just give it time to pray through and talk through so that you can both be together if you're going as husband and wife together. And if you've got children, uh, generally a rule of thumb uh, I tend to use is that if your children are under 10, although you've got to talk to them about the move and so forth, their security is usually in mum and dad. So where mum and dad are, that's where security lies. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be issues in terms of settling into a new culture, but their main security is in mum and dad. But if your child is over 10, if they're 12, 13, 14, then you usually need to take more time with them because they're starting to find their own mind and they're starting to grow up. And it's usually best to try and take some time with them to really talk through the issue and uh, help them too to come to a sense of, yeah, this is where God uh, is leading us as a family. Now, in the end, of course, they're going <laughs> to, I got to say, they're going to have to come with you. But uh, you'll find less trouble if you just uh, do take some time to really talk to older children about it and prepare for them. In fact, one of my passions is, is actually to prepare children uh, for going, uh, not just parents, that sometimes parents get a lot of preparation for going to work in other cultures and situations. But often the children are neglected, oh, we'll just take them along. And there are things, even with the younger ones, who will find their security in mum and dad that you can do to help them to say goodbye well and, and to embrace the new culture that's coming and prepare them for that. And so you, you need to do that. Just to say that there, my experience is that there are, are many different types of call. And uh, if I just run through a few, you might be able to relate to some of these or you might be able to relate to none of them. But it doesn't mean that you're not called, okay? Because as I said a moment ago, God is very individual in his call. Some people are just generally called to other cultures. Do you remember Paul was called to the Gentiles? Well, the Gentiles were a huge kind of field. Uh, so they were non-Jews. And, uh, and his call was the Gentiles. That was, you know, it was a huge call in that sense of the people that he was called to. Sometimes people are called to join another person on their mission. Do you remember how uh, Paul takes Timothy with him on his apostolic mission to be part of his team uh, that's traveling around? And sometimes there's a sense of call of going to join someone else. And so um, Roger, Roger Eaton's here, his brother Tom. 
uh, Tom, you might uh, might know, heads the work in Japan. And when Tom was going off to Japan, there was a whole crowd of young people in his church that said, Oh, Tom, if you're going, we're coming with you. <laughs> and they were committed, not so much, I was going to say, to Japan, but they were committed to Tom and the vision that God had given him. This is true of my own son, that uh, uh, he's now full-time with um, David Stroud in London, in in Christchurch, London. And uh, uh, my Tim and my daughter-in-law, Jackie, were great friends of the Strouds. And when David uh, felt God calling him to plant a church in London, uh, my Tim and Jackie said, well, we'll go with you. And so they didn't have the call to London, but they had the call to serve and work David, uh, with David and Philippa in what they were doing. And sometimes that's a very genuine call. We're called to work alongside people who maybe they have the vision and so forth, but we feel God is saying, no, you go and work alongside them. You, you be with them. That's, that's a very genuine call. Maybe a call to a particular kind of people. Uh, you might feel that God has called you to the poor or to work among business people or children or sports folk. Uh, sometimes there can be that burden that God puts on you that this is where he wants you to work and it was a particular people group that you're to work with. Uh, it could be a specific country, India, Malawi, Ukraine, China. God may place that upon your heart, that that's where he wants you to be. He's calling you to work amongst those people. It may be with a specific people groups. You know, there are many people groups in the world that span geopolitical boundaries. So when you think of uh, in Africa, for example, the Fulani uh, and the Fulani tribe are found in many different nations within Africa. Uh, the Kurds would be another one who span, and the Uzbeks, uh, they span a number of different nations. And it may be that God is calling you to a particular people group that you should be working with. Sometimes people are called to what I call a, a particular value system. And uh, it's really nice to meet um, people sometimes who've got this sense of call. So I've had young people that have come and said, well, uh, we really love uh, New Frontiers and we love relational mission. We love the values. We love the way that they build church, the way they work in team, the way they have apostolic ministry. And uh, quite frankly, we'll go anywhere you send us. That's wonderful to have uh, people that come and say that to you. And, uh, and then, of course, you examine their skills and their abilities and that sort of thing. But actually, it's a sense of I'm being called to work with people with these kind of values and this kind of vision. And sometimes that happens. It may be to a particular type of spiritual ministry. So you may feel that God has given you gifts, teaching, evangelism, pastoral work, whatever it may be, and that God calls you to use those in order to disciple the nations. Or it may be it's your professional and vocational skills, uh, nursing or teaching or engineering, whatever it might be. So what I'm just trying to illustrate really is there's lots of different types of call uh, that God gives, but it's important to have that sense of certainty uh, that this is what God is calling you to because that's what holds you in the times when life really gets rough. And I think we've heard a little bit about that uh, while we've been here, that there is a, a toughness as we go out to pioneer for the Lord. Therefore, the last thing I really kind of want to say here is that um, a genuine call also includes a sense of realism. Since then, when Jesus called people to follow him, he always outlined to them uh, the cost of following him. 
He didn't hide that. And so Stefan, our first session, uh, talked about that verse of Jesus says, you know, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. There's a cost in following the Lord Jesus. And we have to recognize that, particularly where we're uh, working cross-culturally. There can be issues of loneliness, difficulty, sacrifice. Uh, if you're going for any length of time, uh, you might have to say goodbye to future career prospects. There's the whole area of children's education, which can be a real difficult one, uh, if you, certainly if you've got many uh, children at different ages. And, and of course, all children are different. Um, I had, uh, we, we had a, um, a family that were in Yemen, and they had three children. And the particular place in Yemen, there was no education around, not even local schools. And so they had to make that decision, well, how are we going to do our children's education? And so what they did was that they had two of their children who did online education. So they both had a tutor online. And so they did all their, their education online. Their third child just couldn't cope with online at all. It just wasn't him. He just couldn't cope with it. And so they had to homeschool him. So two did very well. And actually all three have gone to university. So they've come out the other end, which is uh, really great. But you have to take those kind of decisions. So there are challenges um, with, within that. Family relationships. Um, one of the things that sometimes uh, has been discouraging for some folk who are trying to follow the call on God of their life is, you know, people very uh, being, you know, trying to be uh, meaning well will say to them things like, well, are you really sure, you know, don't you realize what you're doing to your parents that they won't be seeing their, gra in their grandchildren so regularly? And you have to recognize, yes, there are costs in that kind of thing of family relationships and other friendships. There's a cost sometimes in inquiring new skills, uh, maybe in a professional way or with language or, or social skills. Uh, in some countries now, where you used to be able to get in, uh, you know, to do church planting and things like that, if you go to those countries now, uh, sometimes uh, you have to, can only go in if you've got a job. And now because the level of education is going up in many countries, if you want to go into that country, you have to have a, a higher qualification than people on the ground. And so I can remember one girl uh, who was going over um, into an Islamic country, and she, her background was in uh, psychiatry. And uh, so before she could go in, she had to get another degree in order to be accepted in the country and be able to work there in that closed country. And bless her heart, she, uh, you know, she did. She uh, took more time out. She got a, uh, she upped her degree uh, in the UK and then she went out and was able to get in because she had a higher qualification. So there is a cost involved and any genuine call, I think, will look at that. And if people lack a sense, uh, a strong sense of call, then they often opt out of church planting. In fact, there was a research report that was done a few years back now on missionary, what they call missionary attrition. And it listed 25 of the top reasons why people throw in the towel when they've gone out with enthusiasm and passion to plant a church uh, somewhere uh, in the world. The sort of reasons were like this, health, lack of home support, inappropriate training, problems with fellow workers, children, marriage problems, poor cultural adaptation, and even immorality. So lots of reasons why sometimes people come back. The top two on the list actually are health and children. 
And uh, I don't know if you've got folk, uh, if you're already out in your situation praying for you regularly, but one of the things that you need to pray for is your, your health and also the life of your children. I've seen so many folks who've come back because their children haven't been able to cope in the new culture. Um, and uh, it's sad when you've really pushed your way out following God and you have to come home because there are real issues uh, in the family. That's why preparation of children is, is such, a, uh, such an important thing. Lack of a sense of strong call comes at number 10 on the list of 1 to 25. So it comes at number 10. But actually, amongst um, what we call older sending countries, those who have been sending people for quite a long period of time, it actually comes at number 19 on the list. But with new ascending countries, particularly, uh, for example, in the southern hemisphere now, which is where the vibrancy of Christianity is in the world at the moment, it's in the southern hemisphere. That's where the churches are growing fastest. That's where thousands are coming to Christ at the moment. And they're beginning to send out missionaries. Now, for them, it comes at number two. That's an interesting statistic, <laughs> that for the new ascending countries, um, it's people going with a, a deep sense of enthusiasm and wanting to be obedient to the Great Commission, but actually haven't stood back a little bit and thought of the cost and thought realistically about how we actually uh, approach that. So knowing you've heard God and articulating that to yourself is a real weapon in hard times. Paul says in Acts 26:19, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. And you know how he starts Galatians when he says, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And if you think of that whole list of things that Paul faced in 2 Corinthians 12. You know, the list he goes down about being shipwrecked and being beaten and, uh, you know, being hunger and want and so, you know, what kept Paul going through all that time? It was this certainty that as he had been called of God, this was God who had appointed him, God who had called him. And so it's really important that uh, we too are aware of, the, of that. So that's the first thing which uh, I hope will be helpful to you in the sense of, you know, if you're in it for the long term, then you've got to, you know, seek God for that certainty of, of your call. Second thing, which is the cookie jar, is actually about spiritual disciplines. I don't know how many of you have uh, ever heard Andrew Wilson. Um, Andrew Wilson, when he was teaching once, gave this lovely illustration of the cookie jar, which I think is great. And uh, he was talking about the fact that he had observed uh, that many children, uh, you know, in families, you know, if mum and dad say, you know, you can't have the biscuits or whatever it is, that mum and dad will often put their cookie jar way out of reach of young children. But young children, being what they are, are usually quite innovative. And they can usually find a chair or a stool or something and uh, wedge it up against the worktop in the kitchen and climb up the stool or the chair and reach the cookie jar. And, uh, and the goal, of course, is the cookie jar. But the stool or, or the ladder or the chair, whatever it might be, is what helps you to get to where you're going and to get to the, the real prize. And so Andrew, in a talk I once heard him give, um, talked about that the chair or the, or the steps uh, being like spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are there. They're not an end in themselves, 
but they are to bring us closer to God. They are to help grow us in our relationship with God and our spiritual experience because the cookie jar, if I put it that way reverently, is God himself, that we know him better and that we become more like him. And surely that must be our goal as we go out to plant churches around the world is that we want to be more and more like Jesus so that we are like him and we do what he did. That's God's heart for us. And so spiritual disciplines uh, help us actually uh, within that. Uh, Peter says in 2 Peter 1, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And we could stop there. Well, this is wonderful. He's given us everything <laughs> we need for life and goodness. But then he goes on, For this very reason... Make every effort to add to your faith. And then he lists some things out that we need to add to our faith. And finishes by saying, For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what spiritual disciplines are about. They're helping us to be effective and productive uh, in what God has called us to. And they're a great reminder to us that we never stand still as Christians. We are constantly, hopefully, growing in our walk with God. And I think the truth about spiritual disciplines is that we need to grow in application of them uh, in our lives. Um, Peter again writes, so I will always remind you of these things, these truths, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. And really what I want to do in this next few minutes really is just to remind you of the importance of spiritual disciplines that help us to maintain our personal walk with God. Uh, again, one of the things that was highlighted there in the attrition report uh, was immature spiritual life that often cause people to come back from their, their time overseas or in, a, in another culture. Now, because of time restraints, um, I just want to highlight uh, one or two specific areas in these kind of headings uh, that I feel have pertinence towards uh, church planting and certainly pioneer church planting. The first discipline is the reading and study of Scripture. I guess we all uh, would hold to the fact that the Bible is our final authority on all matters of faith and practice. But I wonder how we, whether we really understand how vital reading and study of Scripture is to the nourishing of our spiritual life and our relationship with God. In the book of Deuteronomy, which was uh, written by Moses uh, before his death, when he summarized in the book of Deuteronomy um, the history of God's people coming out of Egypt to the promised land and recounting all the things that God had done and then recounting again the law that he had given. He gets to the end of uh, Deuteronomy when he says, Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Moses said, you know, God's word... Uh, it's, it's like bread. It's a nourishment that you need on a daily basis. It what causes us to live. It gives what gives us strength. And it's so important that we recognize that and cultivate uh, that reading and study of Scripture in our life. I've, uh, I've been a pastor now for, well, I started very young, so I've been a pastor now over 40 years. And, uh, and one of the things I've constantly seen when I've been dealing with people in problems it's one I always pray, but I always ask people, are you reading the Bible and are you studying the Bible? And I can say that usually eight out of ten people 
I find will say no. That's a terrible thing to admit. And certainly in a family of churches like we are that, you know, put so much emphasis on the importance of the word of God. But so often when I do find people in problems, uh, many of them are not reading their Bibles and they're not spending time. And Moses said, this is, you know, your life. You feed on this. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And of course, Jesus himself uh, quotes that same verse uh, in his temptation in Matthew 4.4. 4. Uh, Jesus repeats that verse from Deuteronomy. Again, in Deuteronomy 32.47, he says, These are not just idle words for you. They are your life. That's a great statement, isn't it? And one of the things that he says about God's uh, people is the enormous privilege that they have, not only that God's presence is with them, but that also God has given them his law and his word. And he says, you don't know what a privileged people you are. And Paul even takes that up in the New Testament uh, when he talks about the fact that, you know, we were without God and without hope in the world, and we were strangers to the promises and covenants of God. God had given all these promises and covenants to his people of old. He gave his word to them. It was a privileged position. And we as believers are privileged. Remember too when Jesus was talking to the crowds and some of them were turning back and and walking away from him. And uh, he asked the disciples, are you going to go as well? (laughs) And Peter says, no, Lord, where could we go? You know, you are the one that have the words of eternal life. And Jesus says, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Again, in John 8, he says, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, the truth, the word of God, is so important. And if we don't learn to cultivate that, uh, then we can make life hard for ourselves when we're out there in the spiritual battle of seeking to plant uh, churches. Those who know about these things tell me that uh, this word know is the same word that's used in Genesis where it talks about Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and had a child. The word know really means that most intimate of relationships. Lovemaking, when a man and woman make love, part of it is not just procreation, it's, it's actually bringing that unity together. And that's what Jesus is saying about his word. We need to be intimate with his word. We need to be married to his word for it to be effective in our life. And we need to give time to do that. So in one sense, I'm teaching you nothing new. You all know the importance of the word. I'm just trying to emphasize, if you're going to find strength for the long haul in church planting, then you've got to really be anchored and rooted in the word of God. And you've got to be marrying yourself with it. Um, an ancient theologian, Rio, says, Holy Scripture exerts a sacred life force through the interpretive and communicative process. God himself is speaking to us. And speaking about biblical and theological interpretation, he says it's a redemptive process, especially for the reader. And I love this quote. He says, The interpreter reads the text in order to understand the meaning of the text. And the text reads the interpreter in order to inscribe a meaningful narrative and to transform the world of the interpreter. Now, if you find that too complicated a sentence, basically what he's saying is what we find in Hebrews 4.12. 
The word of God is living and active and is sharper than any two-edged sword and it comes to the dividing of bone and marrow. What he's saying is the word of God, every time we come to the word of God and we're seeking to understand it, actually the moment we open our Bibles and we start reading, the word starts reading us. Is that your experience? Because you come face to face with God in his word. And it starts to get into the cracks and the, and the things in your life that's wrong. You come confronted with God. That's why the, the word is so important because it, it starts to bring change to us and transform us. Um, the very process, excuse me, uh, of change. It changes our thinking. It renews our minds. It helps us to form a, a Christian worldview. Um, American uh, sort of missionary called Rene Padella says gospel truth is always truth to be lived out, not merely truth to be intellectually known. I found that very helpful as well. When I'm saying, you know, you must read and you must study the word of God, this is life to us, this is our food, this is what actually brings about transformation and renewal in our life. But it's obvious too that the word of God tells us that that's not good enough. We have to put it into practice We have to cultivate the habit of not only receiving fresh revelation and understanding from God's word, but we also have to learn to apply it and to obey it in our lives. When Jesus talked about making disciples of all nations, he said, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you. Obedience is the natural outcome of the reading and study of the word. That's why Jesus, of course, told the parable of the wise and foolish builder uh, in Matthew 7. Um, But you might know that the parable comes not only in Matthew, it also comes in Luke. And if you look at Luke's version, it says uh, of the man who built his house on the rock in Luke 8:48 that he dug down deep and laid foundation on a rock. I think it's a great metaphor, isn't it? He dug down deep and he laid his foundation on a rock. The man who built his house upon the sand, he had no foundation. He just erected it on the sand and his house collapsed. And Jesus said, it's, all I'm just trying to teach you is if you, if you don't put my word into operation, if you don't act upon it, if you don't obey it, then you're just like the man who built his house upon the sand. But actually to apply it, and to be obedient to it takes hard work. And if you've ever watched on a building site, you know that the hardest work that goes on is putting the foundations in, isn't it? It's digging it out, you know, and sometimes, certainly in the UK, in London, you know, often people gather around your new building that's going up and looking over, you know, as they dig in out all the foundations and they just, it's so fascinating. I don't know why English people are fascinated, but they just stand around watching and it goes on and on for weeks and weeks and eventually they've dug down deep enough and they start to put the concrete in. And once the foundations are in the house, you know, just seems to, or the office block or whatever it is, just seems to go up as quick as anything. But it's taken ages to get this in. Understand what Jesus is trying to say. You know, to get the word of God applied into your life and being obedient to that word, living it out in your life, it takes hard work. And you need to build that into your life. But if you do learn to do that, if you do learn to build that into your life uh, as a process over time, then you'll find that when the hard times come, you've got a, a rock beneath your feet. 
you've got something that helps you through those times. It's the same with Jesus when he told the parable of the sower in Luke 8, uh, where he talked about those who uh, were the good seed, or those with a noble and a good heart, in other words, a good heart attitude, who hear the word, retain it, and then he says, by persevering, produce a crop. So important we see that we, there's hard work there. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, the workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. 1 Timothy 4.16, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Okay, secondly, quickly, get time moving on. Persevere in prayer. Uh, in Ephesians 6, Verses 18 to 20, you get Paul's outline of spiritual warfare and the spiritual armor. And right at the end there, after the breastplate and the sword and the shield and all those things, he says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. And I would say that learning persevering prayer is something that all of us need to learn as we walk with the Lord, but never more so uh, when you're in the situation of pioneer church planting. I love the way that Paul also says to them, pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. For Paul, prayer was a priority in terms of the furtherance of the gospel and God's kingdom. You remember 1 Thessalonians 5.17, he says to them there that they ought to pray continually. And of course that was the mark of the early church. When you read of the early church in Acts 2, we're told there that they devoted themselves to prayer. In Acts 4, after Peter and John are released from prison and they go back to the disciples, you get that lovely phrase where it says, and they raised their voices together in prayer. Prayer was shot through the whole of the early church and the advance of the gospel. And that's why it was lovely just to, uh, in the last session, finish up praying for the different nations. Because that's how you break nations open. It's by persevering in prayer for them. And in your own life and uh, building a church, prayer is such a vital part. Interesting that the disciples, when they uh, came to the Lord, they said, Lord, teach us how to evangelize. Teach us how to raise the dead. Teach us how to heal the sick. Now, they never said any of those things. They said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Isn't that interesting? It's not that he didn't teach them how to heal and all the rest of it, but actually their heart was, Lord, teach us. They recognized in Jesus that there was power in his praying, that he received answers uh, from the Father. And yet Jesus himself told parables to encourage us actually to be persistent. Do you remember in Luke 18, the story of the persistent widow? He keeps coming with her case to the judge. And in the end, he gets so fed up with her <laughs> that he gives her her case. Says, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, okay, you know, off you go. You know, I've had enough of you. And Jesus told that story because he wanted us to understand that there needs to be a persistence in, in our praying. It's the same with the parable that he tells in Luke 11, uh, with the parable of the friend at midnight. Do you remember how, um, the guy has 
people come to him and he's got no food in the house and so he has to go to his neighbor and he knocks on the door and the guy's in bed and asleep and he keeps on knocking and he keeps on knocking until he gets up and he does that because he knows actually that it will not just be a shame to him if he has nothing to put before the guests that have come to his home because hospitality is such an important thing in that culture but it will be a shame to the whole village uh, the whole village will suffer the stigma that they weren't able to give hospitality. And so Jesus finishes up that little parable by then saying, ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. And so to cultivate persevering prayer and persistence is so, so important. Tim Keller in his new commentary on the book of Romans uh, translates perseverance as single-mindedness, focusing on what is really important, being delivered from other distractions. Be single-minded in prayer is one of the things that uh, is said. How many of you read uh, the biography of James O. Fraser, Mountain Rain? Anybody read it? Oh, one over there. Good. <laughs> if you get a chance to read it, you ought to read it. He was uh, a missionary to China. He went out to China when he was aged 22 in 1908, and he worked for 30 years amongst the Lusu tribe of the Yunnan province. It was only after his first eight years in 1916 that he saw his first converts, and there were just one or two. And then two years later in 1918, he was able to lead a whole family to Christ. And on the back of that, after that time, very quickly, only a few months afterwards, he saw over 600 people come to Christ and be baptized as believers. And actually today, there's over 100,000 believers, Lusu believers in China. What am I trying to illustrate? I'm trying to illustrate it was eight years before he saw his first converts. But then, you know, they started to come. That was persevering prayer. And if you read the story, not only was he praying, he had people back in uh, the UK, uh, people that were praying with him, standing with him, praying every month, every week, every day with them in order to see a breakthrough. And then God gave the breakthrough. Uh, how many of you heard of George Muller? Yeah, quite a few of you. Remember George Muller um, uh, was a man of faith and prayer. And uh, it's reckoned that in his life he took care of over 10,000 orphans uh, in his homes in Bristol uh, in the UK. But George Muller had five unsaved friends. And he prayed for them daily. And the first of them came to Christ after five years of praying. Then after 10 years two more of his friends got saved and he says in his journal I have prayed for two men by name every day for 35 years on land or sea sick or well I've remembered them before God by name and I shall continue to pray for them daily by name until they are saved or die after 35 years the fourth one was saved he continued to pray on and he prayed in total 52 years for his five friends. And the fifth one was finally saved shortly after George Muller's death. It's a great story, isn't it? At least I, I like it. 
it's such a great illustration of persevering prayer and never giving up. I've, I've got unsaved friends. I don't know if I pray for them daily and whether I've followed George Muller's example of praying day after day after day. We have to learn to use this weapon of, of persevering prayer and be like Paul also being unashamed to ask others to pray for us. I was greatly encouraged the other day um, listening to an interview of Bear Grylls. Do you know Bear Grylls? Um, you know, the outdoor um, guy. And uh, he was being asked by the interviewer, what, what makes you so fit? You know, how are you able to do all these, these great things? And, uh, and they were trying to really get out of him what was his training regime. And uh, one of the things he says, well, I run every day. And so they said to uh, him, well, how far do you run every day? And he's, he thought for a moment, in, and he said, I can't tell you. Said, why, why can't I tell you? Well, because I run a different length. I do run every day, but I run a different length every day. So the interviewer said to him, well, what do you commit yourself to then? And he said, I commit myself to take the first step. He says, every step. You know, every day I take the first step. Sometimes I run for an hour. Sometimes I run for a quarter of an hour. But I always take, I'm committed to take the first step. I think it's a great attitude of heart when we think about prayer. You know, we take the first step always and see where God leads us in that. James says, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And Jumeau says, Elijah was a man just like us, but he prayed and he shut up the heavens. A wonderful thing. If you want a good book on prayer that's just come out, Tim Keller's new book, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God, is a really great read and a, a great help uh, learning how to pray and persevere in prayer. Third discipline, active faith. Remember the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish believers uh, at a time of growing persecution. And uh, in chapter 13, verse 7, they're told to remember their leaders who spoke the word of God to them and to consider the outcome of their way of life and to imitate their faith. And so the defining characteristic of their leaders was that they lived by faith. They learned to trust God through the ups and downs of life and to prove God was true to his word, that he never breaks a promise that he gives. And so that's meant to also, of course, be the defining characteristic of all God's people. And why we get the great chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews, where it describes so many different people who exercised faith and did exploits. And so, although scripture speaks of many different kinds of faith, saving faith, spiritual gift of faith, there is what I call everyday faith, which uh, I tend to think is a little bit more like a muscle that grows stronger with use. And in Jude 20, remember, it says, build yourself up in your most holy faith. And I think everyday faith can be developed. But it's important, of course, to understand what faith is all about. And the Bible's view of faith is it's where one's confidence and trust is placed. And so faith always starts, again, with the word of God. God speaks. God gives a promise. God says he will do something in the future. And we trust God that what he says will happen that he is fully able to deliver on his promise. And for us to trust God, it needs to be a, a kind of death to self-trust and we need to learn to focus on the facts about God that he has revealed about himself. It's an acts out of measured reflection, not simply reacting to circumstances, but actually trusting in the God who has revealed himself to us.
John Piper says, faith gains a lot of its confidence by God's past faithfulness, but faith doesn't just look back to what God did in the past, but mainly looks forward to what God promises to do in the future. So how does faith develop with us? Well, it starts with God. It starts with what is said, what is promised, what is revealed about himself. But it has to be followed by uh, an inner heart response that in humility fully accepts that what God has said, despite what we see all around us, is true. Despite the negative circumstances, despite sometimes the human risk that might be involved, despite sometimes the uncertainty or perplexity regarding the detail of how God's promise will actually be worked out itself in our lives. We have to trust that word. It has to find an inner response in us that says, yes, Lord, even though this is going on all around me outside, all these adverse circumstances, I'm going to have confidence. I'm going to trust what you said will actually come to pass. We know that that reality is greater than how we feel or how things appear. And then from that internal heart humility response, there has to come that external act, that fruit, if you like, of that inner response, that outward obedience to what God has said, our action based upon God's promise. And so it keeps its focus on that promised future. And the great thing about faith is, again, we read that it perseveres to the end. Because faith is about trusting God day by day to the very end of our life. Faith is not about a a single act of receiving Jesus. It's receiving Jesus in order to go on in trusting in him day after day after day. And our life as Christians should be one of confidence and trust uh, in Jesus. And the great thing about uh, Hebrews 11, which I feel is encouraging for us again uh, in the kind of heat and battle of church planting, is that faith not only allows us to perform amazing exploits and to experience acts of miraculous deliverance and to know transformation, like Hebrews says, transform from weakness into great strength and power. But Hebrews also tells us that faith enables us to face suffering, persecution, mistreatment, ridicule, destitution, the lack of necessities, and the comforts of life. John Piper says again, God does not always work miracles and acts of providence to deliver his people by faith, but sometimes by faith God sustains his people through horrendous sufferings. It believes God himself is better than what life can give to you now and better than what death can take from you later. That's a great attitude uh, to have. So faith, learning to trust God in the everyday things of life, again is something that brings strength to us as we, we face the challenges of church planting. And then the last thing under disciplines is partnering with the Holy Spirit. Paul recognized the importance of fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Uh, fellowship being translated sometimes partnership, sharing a common interest together, but it speaks of a close and, and a warm relationship. Remember Jesus promises in John 14 that he will give us another counselor to be with us forever. And that word another means uh, another just like me. Sometimes we say, you know, wouldn't it be great if Jesus was kind of here? <laughs> we could talk to him. He could be alongside us when we're involved in things. Well, he is. 
because the Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Jesus and the Holy Spirit lives within us. Jesus says he lives with you and will be in you. Jesus says it's to our advantage that he goes away so that the Holy Spirit can come. Gerard Kelly in his book uh, Church Actually says the Holy Spirit through the body of the church equips us not only with the gifts and resources we need to do God's work but with the inner drives and attitudes without which we will fail swallowed up in our own selfishness. I love that. It's very biblical to talk about inner drives and attitudes because remember Paul in Philippians 2.12 says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act of his good purpose. And I find that really encouraging, that the Holy Spirit lives in me and he's constantly prompting me, he's constantly stirring me, he's constantly seeking to give me those right attitudes so that I can uh, live the life that God has called me to live. And so we need to learn to partner with the Holy Spirit. And I guess the Christian life is all about learning to partner and cooperate with the Holy Spirit, and that's a growing relationship. We need to learn to be obedient to his voice and to his leading. Paul says in Galatians 5.25, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit so on a practical level that means therefore learning not to grieve or to quench the spirit of god in ephesians 4 paul says don't grieve the holy spirit of god and remember that ephesians 4 passage where that comes is all about putting off the old self and putting on the new self getting rid of those sinful attitudes and actions that offend and vex and uh, and sadden the Holy Spirit and rather cultivating the positive character traits that reflect God's character and holiness, truthfulness, wholesome speech, kindness, compassion, forgiveness. It's the sort of thing that, uh, uh, again, uh, Steph was talking about in the first session. Remember when he talked about, you know, there's that sense of dying to self, dealing with the flesh. You know, if your hand offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. There's got to be a radical dealing with sin in our life. And when we're doing things that grieve the Holy Spirit, we need to address those. Uh, if we're going to be strong for the long haul, then we've got to learn how to walk with the Spirit and not to grieve Him. But, of course, Paul also says in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, we mustn't quench the Spirit either. Or, as one version puts it, don't put out the Spirit's fire. And the context of that in 1 Thessalonians is the context of the importance of prophecy and of spiritual gifts and the importance of not despising or neglecting spiritual gifts. Because if we do, then we dishonor the giver of those gifts, the Holy Spirit. So Paul says to Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And so there's a great reminder there that we need to be obedient to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. So they're just four, uh, you know, kind of there are lots of other disciplines, I realize that. But they're just four that actually if you cultivate those and are regularly, you know, growing in those, increasing in those in your life, uh, then you'll be strong for the long haul. The third area of trying to um, help us to build strength into our lives so that we can church plan for the long haul is to be committed to what I've called contextualization. 
Now, contextualization is a huge subject, um, so I'm only going to nudge you, if I can put it that way, in the right direction. But let me define it for you first. Contextualization can be thought of as the attempt to communicate the message of the person, works, word, and will of God in a way that is faithful to God's revelation, especially as it puts forth in the teachings of Holy Scripture, and that is meaningful to respondents in their respective culture and existential contexts. So contextualization has to do with how we handle theology, Bible translation, interpretation and application. Uh, has to do with our, inca- our incarnational lifestyle, how we actually live uh, our lives in the new cultural context. has to do with how we evangelize. Uh, has to do with Christian instruction and discipleship once people are saved. How we plant churches and church growth, church structures and organization, worship styles, and so on and so forth. In other words, all those activities that we're involved in, in carrying out the Great Commission and teaching people to obey all that Jesus has commanded us. And I guess the basic method of contextualization could be summarized in this way. That firstly, we research the scriptures to perceive the world as God perceives it, the way that he has revealed it and revealed himself and revealed his world to us. But then secondly, we have to study the culture that we're involved in, whether that's uh, another part of our own country where we live or we've gone overseas to somewhere else or another part of Europe or whatever, and to study the the myths, the history, the background uh, of the people that we've come to live amongst in order to see the world as they see it. Uh, And that has to be the next stage, really just trying to understand what's their world, what's their worldview, how do they see reality, how do they make sense of things. And then the third stage would be coming back to then take the gospel and see how we can uh, present it in such a way that it becomes meaningful uh, to those that are listening to us. And the Apostle Paul is a great example of this if you study his preaching in Acts because when you look at Paul, you find that he uses vocabulary and themes that are familiar uh, to his hearers, not obscure to them. Often he quotes uh, authorities um, that are accepted within that culture, uh, things that his listeners would respect. When he's talking to Jews and God-fearing Gentiles or even converts to Judaism, he's often using the Bible. He quotes the Bible. But when he's talking to pagans or philosophers, he describes God in ways that they will be able to accept and are familiar with. So let me give you three examples. In Acts 13, in Antioch Poseidon, he speaks to the Jews and he quotes extensively from the Old Testament. In the following chapter, in Acts 14, at Lystra, uh, he's particularly addressing pagans, and uh, so he corrects their views on their own gods, and he underlines the fact that there is only one creator God. And then in Acts 17, when he gets to Athens, where he's debating with the philosophers, uh, he starts uh, by talking about their own idols and their own quest for worship, but he quotes their own poets. And so there's a different approach, and if you've never read the book, I'd recommend to you Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours by Roland Allen. It's a very old book, but it's been reprinted uh, a number of times. And it's, it's really great to just see the different ways that Paul actually changed, not the gospel, but the way he presented the gospel to the audience that he was uh, coming to. 
Tim Keller, again in his new book, um, uh, Communicating Faith in an Age of Skepticism, has a whole chapter on preaching Christ to the culture. And uh, he says, Paul always chooses elements of contact, points of actual agreement and affirmation of some of the audience's concerns, hopes, and needs. And so Paul demonstrates knowledge of the culture and worldview of the audience that he's going to. And Keller says that, you know, contextualization means that we have to resonate with the culture and yet at the same time defy the culture. Certainly those things which are uh, satanic or are demonic within it. He says we are to antagonize a society's idols while showing respect for its people and many of its hopes and aspirations. And that we have to express the gospel in a way that is not only comprehensible but also convincing. And the goal of contextualization, of course, is to change the worldview of our audience that are listening to us. So how can we do that? How can we contextualize the gospel? Well, one or two points to get you started. Firstly, remember to work hard to discover the culture and the worldview. I've worked a lot with Dave Devonish, and uh, these are some of the questions that we often ask when we're moving into a new culture, uh, seeking to church plant into new areas of the world. And uh, these are questions that you too could answer or ask in your own setting where your church plant in. So firstly, what factors significantly contribute to a person's identity? Where is their identity rooted? What gives them identity? What are the main influences on a person's life? Is it their family? Is it the media? Uh, is it school and education? Uh, is it television? You know, what is it? What are the main influences in a person's life? How does a person reach a decision? People have different ways of reaching decisions. I remember one pastor in London who got constantly frustrated by the fact that people came to him for counsel, but the cultural background that they came from meant that the family was the most important thing in life. And so they would ask him about issues, and he would tell them uh, from the Bible, you know, what God wanted them to do. And then they would go home and they would talk to their family. And whatever the family said, they went with that, even if it was against what the pastor was saying. And he found great frustration in that. That's because they were the ones that affected the decision-making. They were the ones that put pressure on to move them in a certain direction and make certain decisions. How is honor or status recognized? How are outsiders viewed? How are emotions displayed? How is conflict dealt with? What are the things in that society that cause fear or anxiety? What do people regard as major offences? I can remember being in cultures where actually to lie was very acceptable. It was just normal practice. You know, everybody did it and that was expected uh, within that culture. What rituals do people perform? In what ways do the supernatural influence beliefs, spirits or miracles or dreams? In what way do superstitions influence beliefs? What aspects of culture are most resistant to change? What aspects of the gospel do we need to emphasize to counter some of those issues? And what stories can we tell to convey a biblical worldview in that culture? Now, there are lots of other questions that you could ask. It's just trying to get you to that sense of we need to learn 
uh, and we were talking about this a little bit in yesterday's session. Like Jesus, we need to immerse ourselves in the culture. Don't know whether you ever thought about it. Why didn't Jesus start his ministry until 30 years? Why did he work for 30 years as a carpenter? You know, because in those 30 years he was learning the culture. He became human. He grew up amongst us. He was learning things, which is illustrated actually when you start to see Jesus' ministry, the way that he had understood his culture, the way that he had understood the political scene. He had had a preparation period. Now, I'm not saying you all have to have 30 years of preparation, but there are things to learn about the culture if you're trying to communicate. So asking questions is very important. Secondly, remember, contextualization is unavoidable. Tim Keller says, the moment you open your mouth, many things, your cadence, your accent, your vocabulary, your illustrations, and your ways of reasoning, and the way you express your emotions, make you culturally more acceptable and accessible to some people, and yet force others to stretch and work harder to understand or even pay attention to you. No one can present a culture-free formulation of biblical truth. It's quite a challenging paragraph, but that's true. And Keller suggests that there are six sound practices that you can use. Firstly, try and always use accessible vocabulary. I use double vocabulary in my own church uh, these days. One vocabulary is English. The other is actual um, image. So I lose lots of PowerPoint when I'm preaching. Now, the reason I do that is that I have many people in my congregation who are not first languages English. And I find that they can follow what I'm saying easier when I'm talking, but they've also got an image that actually helps them. So we have to be aware of that. Use vocabulary that's accessible. Employ culturally respected authorities. Demonstrate an understanding of doubts and objections. Affirm in order to challenge baseline cultural narratives. Make the gospel offers that push on the culture's pressure points. In other words, uh, looking where the needs are, the issues that that sort of uh, culture is aware of, the things they're, they're grappling with, and then try and, last of all, to give gospel motivation. In other words, try to show that uh, in Christ, those aspirations, those hopes, those needs can be met not only because Christianity gives a better explanation of how to deal with those, but also because Christ is the answer to them. And then uh, I think I'm going to skip the next bit because time's gone, but you've got it, you've got it on your notes. Uh, the next thing I was going to talk about was just, uh, just to remember how communication works okay, between you, the source, and the people that are listening to you. And uh, I've listed down here seven different ways that you have to think about when you're seeking to communicate uh, with others. There are seven dimensions when you communicate with people that you need to think about if you're going to communicate in a way that really helps them to grasp uh, what you're saying. Because everybody who's listening actually filters what you're saying to them through their own worldview. So we all have a worldview. It's like putting on a pair of glasses. And uh, so everything that we, we hear actually comes through that worldview. And uh, it's almost another illustration would be if you take meat and you put it 
through a grinder okay, to come out the other end. Everything that we hear actually goes through the meat grinder and, and we make it come out in the way that you know, it appeals to us. So we have to be aware of that. And the way to do that is to remember that there are different ways of perceiving. No one sees the world exactly as it is. There are different ways of uh, thinking, the way we process information. People and different cultures think in different ways. Uh, there are ways of linguistic forms, ways we express ideas, ways of acting. Uh, we have to learn what is the pro- most appropriate way uh, to act. Sometimes it's not language that offends people, but it's our behavior. And we have to learn those things, the best way to actually present uh, the truth. Ways of interacting socially, uh, you have to think about that. Um, media ways of channeling the message, uh, particularly in the day in which we live now where there is so much uh, multimedia, we have to think about how people receive their messages and the very medium of the message, and then ways of deciding uh, how do people make their decisions. As I illustrated a moment ago, do they just as an individual decide for themselves, or does the family have more influence, and does that affect how they decide about things, uh, and so on and so forth. Let me just, uh, I'm cutting all this because I want to give you time to just ask questions. You've got a little, uh, you've got a little picture on the back. The, the real point of contextualization is that in the end, we want people to understand the truth of the gospel, but then we want to help them express that in a way that is culturally relevant for them. And so if you see what we're after is changing people's worldview, how they view reality by helping them to have a biblical worldview. But the gospel actually, what we're trying to do is is take the principles of scripture, the teaching of scripture, and help people to work out in their own culture what is the best way to express that and to live that out in the culture where, where they are. And therefore, although the gospel's the same and the biblical worldview is the same, the way that it's expressed in different cultures will be different. And so if I'm teaching in certain contexts, I wouldn't be behind this lectern. I'll be sitting on the floor in a round circle. <laughs> because culturally, that's the most sensitive way and that's how you teach and communicate. So one needs to be taught, one needs to learn, but how you do it, the style of that, same with worship. We were talking about that yesterday uh, when I go to the Ukraine. I love uh, the churches there. They all dance together. They don't all just dance individually. They hold hands and they dance around the church together. It's great. They, they do it in a community way. So the Bible says dance, but it doesn't tell you how to dance. And that's what we have to learn culturally. We have to be able to help people to discover in your culture how can you express the greatness of God according to these biblical principles. I'm going to stop there because um, time's run out. And uh, maybe you've got one or two questions you'd like to ask in the last few minutes. Come on, Phil. <laughs> Yep. 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 Sure. I will. 
Yes. Uh, by teacher, I mean coming in in the sense of, you know, I know it all and I'm going to teach you uh, what, what it means and, and so forth. Yes, obviously teaching is at the heart and, and Jesus even says it in the Great Commission, you know, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. But I think it's more getting at the attitude, you know, that we go in, that we have all the answer. We we're talking about this a bit yesterday, um, that we go in with that sense of we have the answers, we know where it's all at. Um, and one of the things that I think was uh, a bit of a barrier in previous um, sort of cross-cultural ministry really was that people often went and gave the answers that were right for their culture rather than allowing people to discover in their own culture. So they need to know the principle, but helping them to work out. But it's trying to come against an attitude of um, being superior really in that sense of, of saying, I'm, I'm here to teach you the right way to do everything. Because uh, often, as if you've had any experience of cross-cultural ministry, you'll know that you learn much more <laughs> from people that you're interacting with very often than you do yourself. You just pick up so many good things and you, God helps you to see great things in different cultures that you think, boy, I wish my culture was like this. You know, so you need to be aware of that. If you're sort of new to a culture, how would you... What advice would you give in terms of just learning about that culture and how to go about that? Yeah, I think going back to, to Mike's thing today, you know, sort of fun, friendship and food, spending time with people. Um, one of the good ways to, to know a culture is to spend time with people, ask questions, observe, keep on asking questions. Uh, that's, that's probably the best way. Ask for their life stories. It's great sitting down and uh, asking. I particularly like, if I'm in a culture, talking to the older folk because um, they're full of stories of their life stories and their history and you get a bit of a feel of how that culture has changed over the years so I would say as much as you can engage and of course that's one of the difficulties if you don't have the language um, so that's why one puts quite an emphasis on the importance of, of learning language because um, people's worldview is often caught up in their language language is very important and uh, uh, and even if you learn the language, it, it, that goes on, you know, it, you never stop because you're learning the, the idioms and the jokes and that sort of thing. So uh, I know with some of my Russian friends, um, English humor is lost on them. You know, we're, with our, you know, we use uh, in our humor, we use puns and, you know, we play with words. What they love, the Russians, is a slapstick comedy. So you have a bit of slapstick and they just are rolling up, you know, it's really what they like. So even in humor and things like that, when you spend time with people, you start to understand, uh, you know, the things that are important to them. So the more time you can spend, um, the better really in that. And, and that's where sometimes, again, it, it, you can find tension, particularly if you're church planting and you've, you've got a job and you've got to spend a lot of time at your work and you have little time kind of leisure. But even in your workplace, you can, you know, build that and learn from people. But ask questions, keep on asking. Be, be, I always say be childlike. You know, um, my kids and my grandchildren, you know, they're always asking, you know, the why question. <laughs> why do we do this? Why do we do that? But even then, you've got to learn the appropriate way um, to ask questions of people in cultures. But you'll pick that up very quickly. But spend as much time as you can. It's really helpful. And look at those kind of questions. I've got a, I've got a five pages questionnaire um, that I use for new cultures. Um, many different questions about home and society and that sort of thing that just helps you to understand things. Um, read travel books. 
all those kind of things. Uh, there's a lot on, on these days secular anthropology that helps you to understand different cultures, um, what their values are, the difference between Western and Eastern culture. Those kind of things can really be helpful. Honor and shame, guilt, these are areas that you can help you know how to present the gospel um, to them. Mike, do you have any comments on how to do contextualization well in a multicultural international city when you've got lots of different cultures yes. all bringing different emphasis? Yeah, that's how great. do you reach those different people? Great question. I don't think I can give you a uh, you know, a good answer to that, really. I think it, you have to work on that um, very hard. I think um, I, I love multicultural church in the sense that I believe it reflects very much the diversity of God in terms of his creation and the fact that we're one new man. But it does cause issues um, that you have to find a common life together. And uh, depending on the makeup, um, you know, what your nationalities are will actually affect really how you, how you do church life together. And it's really just a sense of, you know, living together, asking the, the Lord, you know, to give you humility. The, the Philippians 2 thing I always feel is strong, you know, considering others more important than yourself. If, if all the nationalities can have that, uh, that's important. But you see, you even have that, um, yeah, I'll give you this illustration from our own, from our own setting. So, although we have 25 nations, you can also have differences between, um, uh, gender and also age. So, for example, every now and again we do family services. And one of the things I spotted in the church that was, was whenever we did a family service, the older single ladies opted out. Now, why do you think they opted out? Well, actually, because for many of them, uh, their time of reproduction was over. They were still single. And actually, they found they find family quite hard. So I just turned a blind eye. No, I didn't. I went and talked to them about it. And I said, you're part of this family. And actually, in a family, we all do things um, that, you know, we don't particularly like. And certainly if you've got children, you know, at least we do with our kids, you know, we used to do activities and one child wouldn't like it, the other two did, you know. But you do it together because you're family. And so I said, please, could you make sure you're here? Because it honors those who have been working amongst the children and giving their time for them each time. And the children are part of the church. You need to love them. See what I'm saying? So even, even you know, if it's not cross-cultural, there are issues even within church life of, of culture and how people approach the things. So knowing that we are one family in God and trying to work that out uh, will be different um, for all of us, different expressions on that, and depending on the cultures that people um, come from. And that, that gets reflected in worship as well. So when we had a huge um, African contingent, um, we had a whole gang of Nigerians, and so we used to let them lead worship uh, every now and again, and we used to worship in African style, and we learned to sing in Nigerian and that sort of thing. So, but you've got to find, find your way through those and also deal with some of the issues because people will be offended by different, um, different things. So I can't give you a kind of template. I think you just have to have a right heart attitude, considering others better than yourself, a heart attitude where you all you try and get everyone to serve one another and, uh, you know, give patience with each other and that sort of thing, really. But, you know, getting people together, having meals together where you all bring food from different cultures, having highlighting someone's... Uh, 
someone's culture and that sort of thing, music or dress or whatever, can all be helpful ways of breaking down um, barriers. Trying to get people from the different cultures in different leadership points. Uh, I've been in Africa where there's been uh, breaks in the church because um, the elders have been appointed from a minority tribe <laughs> where there's more people in the congregation from the other tribe. And why have you appointed so-and-so? It's because you don't like our tribe. You know, No, it's not because you don't like your tribe. This man has got the anointing and gifting of God on him. And if he'd been from this tribe, we would have appointed him. Um, so you have to deal with all those kind of, kind of issues, really. But no definitive, I'm afraid. <laughs> Okay, guys, we can talk to me now because time's gone. Uh, If you want to come and chat to me afterwards, that's great. There's a half-hour break before uh, the next seminar.